I did, I'm just in fashion saying, you know, and, and I don't mean this in an arrogant way about myself, but I felt, you know, I said like, only a gay person could have written a piece like that. Um, and I think it's important that, you know, where, where LGBT people are out in sports journalism, that they are empowered where it's meaningful to do those stories. Welcome to episode 23 of the Outfield Podcast. I'm sorry it's been another long break without these shows. I apologize, but it's getting closer to Pride Month, so I've got to pick this back up again. And I've picked up the show with another amazing guest. I'd like to, you all to meet, if you haven't followed soccer on The Athletic, um, some of you probably don't do that, but if you're me, you follow it religiously. Uh, Adam Crafton, one of The Athletic's many great soccer writers covering the English game. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Uh, I have a market that I have cornered here, the nichiest of niche markets. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have now cornered the market on out soccer riders at The Athletic. Had Jeff Reuter on the show last fall, so I had the American side of this cover. Now I have you. So I've got both sides of The Atlantic covered. It's great. There you go. Well, as as, uh, many people have warned, it's spreading and... Uh, the gays are coming for you, aren't they? they? So they're, they're coming for everybody. I think we all know that. But, you know, there's a part of me was like, oh, oh, now they're covering everything. Now they're even covering English mm-hmm. soccer. We're, we're, we're done for. Yeah. Well, it's also it's not just me on um, on the UK side. There's actually our editor in chief, Alex Kajelski, is he's um, out as gay. He's married, um, has children, um, married to a man, I should say. Um, and. Uh, we have Nancy Frostick as well, who is um, proudly out as, as lesbian as well, who covers Sheffield Wednesday, which is a soccer club in, in the UK. Um, I mean, so does, the, does it count really at the moment? They're definitely struggling. I think they're now down in the third division. But yes, yeah, once upon, a, once upon a time, Premier League. Um, but yeah, they've, they've gone down sufficiently that I felt that I had to add at the end of after mentioning Sheffield Wednesday that they are in fact a soccer club in the UK. See, I know all of this. I, <laughs> I, I have immersed myself into this sport over the last decade, so much so I do. People know me. I know they know I, I root for Tottenham Hotspur. So based on when we're recording this, you might think, hey, I'm going to ask 50 different questions about the Met. No, I'm not going to do that. I have to be professional today. And so I can't do that. Also, people know I do play-by-play for soccer. I know, but there might be people who listen to this show who are just getting introduced to you for the first time who may find some of the soccer stuff like, okay, this is a little bit too, you know, inside the beltway, for lack of a better phrase. I'm going to try to keep that to a minimum as much as I can, even though I could do the soccer geek talk. Um, But so for people who don't know about your story and who you are, tell them a little bit about yourself. Um, Well, I'm 27 years old on Sunday. Okay. We've reached the point now where even the people at the athletic are younger than me. (laughs) <laughs> maybe by a few months, maybe by like seven months, but still. Um, and I've been with The Athletic since we launched in the UK in um, July 20, 2019. Um, in fact, we launched in the August. I started in, in the July. Um, and then previously, I was working at the Daily Mail newspaper in the UK, also on covering sport. Um, now I'm with The Athletic, it's only football. Back then, it was more... It was football and tennis and athletics and a bit more across different sports. Um, and now, yeah, being at the athletic almost two years, um, hopefully people enjoy the kind of work which I do, which tends to be 
a mix of interviews and features and investigations, which is a really, you know, for me, um, a really fun and rewarding cross section of being able to take, you know, the sport very, very seriously at certain times when it's, you know, for example, this story is when I was at the Daily Mail about um, you know, sexual abuse in, in football, which is very heavy, and then also done stories about how the transfer window works. So it gives a real good variety that's very stimulating from a work point of view. And then I've been very lucky as well to interview um, a lot of a lot of the most famous people in, in, in football. So I feel very, very privileged uh, to, to have done that. I got the idea to have you on because I was reading earlier this week the Europa League final was in Gdansk mm-hmm. in Poland. And before everybody decided to make penalties and have the best penalty shootout maybe ever, you were writing an amazing piece about the experiences of the Polish LGBTQ community, which right now is frankly pretty awful. And you were writing about whether, you know, it should be having finals in Poland when this is happening. And that would give me the idea to have you on the show because that was an amazing piece. And also there was a time when you interviewed uh, people around Justin Fashano, and we'll talk about that later. But these are some of the amazing pieces you've got to write, to write. And I think that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on because not only do you write these amazing stories about a ton of topics, whether they be mundane inside the Beltway soccer things or something more along the lines of what you said, you also get to bring in your own personal experiences to your work and you get to write stories that you have some great colleagues, but they're not going to be able to write the story you wrote about Justin Fashano or what you wrote earlier this week. So I think that's another reason why I want to have you on because we don't get those stories particularly covering the English game in the way that I think we all want to and you were able to write some of them. Yeah, well, th- thank you um, for, for saying that. That's really kind. Um, it's quite interesting. I, was, I, I think it's gone over to the States now as well. Earlier this year um, in the UK, there was a, an incredibly powerful drama um, called It's a Sin, um, which was written by Russell T. Davis um, in the UK. And it, w- it was basically recounting the 1980s um, HIV crisis and obviously became AIDS crisis um, in London and one of the th- one of the, the the narratives that came out of that was he he basically decided to use an entirely gay uh, cast and there was quite a lot of discussion in, in the UK about it because he he actually came out and said you know that gay roles should be played by um, by gay actors or LGBT roles should be played by LGBT people um, and at the time, you know, I think when I first heard him say it, and this was before watching, um, before watching the show, um, a part of me was like, well, I've seen, you know, I've seen lots of films over the years where, um, where, where, where gay guys, uh, sorry, where straight men have played gay roles, and it's been very moving. So, for example, um, the film A Single Man with Colin Firth, you know, straight guy, but in, in, incredibly powerful um, in, in the role, and it was actually watching. It's a sin, and seeing all these gay, gay guys and lesbian women playing these parts, um, and it just—it—it's just struck me that it, it just meant more. It meant that little bit more, and I couldn't really imagine the show working if they'd done it differently. Um, and to take why why I'm saying this is just to take up the point you just said about you know hopefully the fact that I'm able to I suppose relay some of my experiences through writing these stories, you know, not, I don't in any way insert myself into these stories, but I feel as though if you are LGBT, you have just that greater level of understanding and empathy um, 
at times that's also hurt and pain um, that you're able to uh, to, to relate to the to the, to the reader, um, and I and I do th- you know actually I think I sent a message to my boss after that uh, piece I did on just in fashion, saying you know and, and I don't mean this in an arrogant way about myself, but I felt uh, you know I said like only a gay person could have written a piece like that, um, and I think it's important that you know where where LGBT people are out in sports journalism that they are empowered where it's meaningful to do those stories. Yeah, because it, it's a lived experience. And I, I don't think it's something you could say one-to-one, it should be all the time. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, call me by your name. It's, they're not played by gay actors. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that. But the point is, like, for certain experiences, I think there is a lived experience that makes you, as a writer, be able to understand the nuances of a story such as the LGBTQ community in Poland is being treated like absolute dirt. Why are we putting a final here? And here's a way that we can explain that to people in a way that they can relate to, but somebody who is out and understands that, that trauma can go like, boy, I feel that. I've, I've yeah. seen that before. And I think, as I said, and you've got some great colleagues, but none of them are going to be able to write that story. They can say, why are we holding the Europa League final in a country that has these issues? And that's fine. They'd be able to do a great job of it. But they wouldn't be able to do it in the way you did because you're able to interview these people and you're able to get their, their lived experiences. And I think that's very important. And I'm going to get later on to talking about the larger experiences of our community in English soccer at some point, because it's a wider discussion we want to have. But first I want to get to know you a little better because I don't, I I know you as a journalist, I've read so many of your stories, but I don't know the story of how you grew up and your coming out story. So tell us everybody a little about that. Um, well, I grew up in Manchester, um, in the northwest of England, um, and I, I mean, I just wasn't out um, until, until I was 21. So, yeah, my childhood and teenage years, I, you know, I was not only not out, but I'd almost just compartmentalized it in my head as this is, you know, this is a part of my life I can just control, as, as, as silly as that sounds now. It was as though, well, I know that I have these like feelings and urges, but if I, I don't know, concentrate really hard on uh, work at school or if I uh, concentrate really hard on sport or if I, um, you know, really dedicate myself to becoming a journalist, whatever that was at whichever stage of life, I would always find a, a distraction that would that would that would make those not those thoughts disappear. Like, you know, clearly there would be you know certain times of the day where you think where you think about men right um but i felt like i was quite in control of that and even at you know i went to um university in the uk and this is what age 18 to 21 and the first 3 years of that again i was able to just sort of deflect from it and distract from it and occupy myself in different ways um and then i think i i'd actually i'd been living in uh, Barcelona and Paris uh, for a year as part of my um, university course and um, it's one of my big regrets that when I was in Catalonia I was not um, out as gay because it would have been very fun um, but, but seems the, mundane but, but it's probably true well I'm, I'm pretty sure it would be true um, but then I, I came back uh, to, to university in my fourth year and actually just like quite a lot of people that I was spending time with were gay and and all of a sudden it was like 
what, what am I doing? What am I, why am I still distracting from this and hiding from this um, and making myself unhappy in doing so, you know, limiting my life experience so much. Um, I think that was the, tr it was maybe one moment. It was almost in stages because I think I started seeing, you know, I started seeing someone wasn't particularly serious, but then, you know, a few months after that, I think I told my mum and then told my dad quite a way after. Um, and, and yeah, like, you know, but I certainly wouldn't like, I wouldn't say like I was miserable, like growing up. It just, I was just able to control and compartmentalize it. Um, and I know some people listening might find that sort of very difficult to relate to because, you know, I mean, like my flat, my roommate, for example, who's gay, um, you know, he was out when he was 13, 14. And I often feel a bit, a bit of a fraud when, you know, he will talk about, um, you know, being bullied at school and uh, it being really tough because he was out and he was gay and he was himself and he was brave. Um, and there was me just sort of faking it um, and getting away with it to a certain extent. So I'm always really in awe of those people, particularly like, sounds silly to say like from our generation, but I think there is a generational difference even between how millennials and Gen, Gen Z have um, have been able to be in a school environment. But but I'm always quite in awe of, you know, anyone really over the age of 23, 24 now who was really able to be themselves um, in school and, and take what it was that was coming to them uh, for, for just for being themselves. I find that amazing you say the difference between millennials and Gen Z because we're yeah. the same age. I don't even, I mean, there are times I'm like, I don't feel that old. And then I saw somebody on Twitter post like, what's a CD? And I'm like, oh, for <laughs> I'm very old now. Um, was it the fact that you were interested in sports and sports journalism as I was when mm. I was the same age as you and going through the same stage of life? Was being interested in those two things able to help you compartmentalize because we all know that if you're interested in sports, mm. I mean, that's different compared to if you're interested in other stereotypically gay things that people would like to stereotype you as. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I, I didn't fit like stereotypes growing up. You know, I wasn't like going, you know, I wasn't going along to like musical theater auditions and I wasn't um, playing with dolls as a four-year-old. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's what, gay people do as kids, I'm saying that's what the stereo, you know, some people have stereotypes as. Um, but I suppose those signs of, you know, that some people point to when they were a lot younger probably weren't there, um, weren't there with me. But I mean, at the same time, it wasn't like I was dating loads of girls. So I don't think it was a huge shock to people who knew me um, when, I, when I did come out. And, and yeah, I think you're right. Like if you're interested in those things that are not seen as spaces for gay for gay people to visibly be themselves, and that is still the case in not just soccer in, in the UK, that's across sport, um, uh, across a lot of sports, across Europe, really. Um, and um, so, so, yeah, I think there probably was an element of that, but like, I, I don't know, I, I never, I don't think I, that was ever like an intentional thing of, I'm gonna be really interested in sport to distract from the fact I'm gay. I think it was, I'm interested in sport and I'm also gay. I think that sometimes it, it, it kind of works in a, like an uh, alliance of convenience mm. sort of situation, right? Because, you know, if you are interested in sports, you know, you are in school and when you're younger, you are typecast as a certain thing. 
you know, as opposed to, I give the story from when I was in high school, that the only out kid I knew was, you would have known he was out, he was in theater, the personality was what, you, what stereotypes would tell you was a gay person. And mm. I'm going through figuring out my sexuality at that time, and I was, and I said repeatedly to myself, I'm not like that, which <laughs> was a horrible thing to say, and it does, I don't care, you are who you are, I'm not able to judge who you are based on your personality. If you're happy with who you are, then go on out and be yourself. You know, everybody knows that. But I mean, I give that example because I think it's. No, but, a, it's, but, it's but, a, but I, I think you're, 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 I mean, you're, you're saying what you've thought, so obviously you're right. But I, mean, I, but I mean it, I totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, I probably still have like certain deep seated layers of internalized homophobia, um, which are, which are, which are probably still sort of dormant and present at, at, at certain times but cer you know certainly i remember being in uh high school um and you know seeing a, you know seeing a guy who was like quite out and gay and quite camp and just thinking well i'm, I'm nothing like that how could i be like that well, I, I think it came right. to the point that i and one of the things i like about this show is you know it doesn't matter you know what your personality is that doesn't define you I and mean, sexuality mm. is not personality you know, and, and I mean, those people, they are great. They are awesome. They are wonderful parts of the world and the community, but they're, we're all different. And that's, and that's, I think, the part of it, too. And that's, you know, when you see more people in sports, you see the different kinds of stories of how, you know, you go through that journey. And yeah, yeah. And, and I think and also, I mean, what, what, what I've learned over time is like they weren't the problem. I was the problem. Right. Or society was the problem. But these people being themselves definitely weren't the problem. And, you know, like, and now, you know, as I get older, like, you know, I go to drag shows and I watch Drag Race and, you know, those things that, again, like 10 years ago, it's impossible to even conceive that, that, that I could, be, I would put myself in that space or expose myself to that kind of, to that part of popular culture. So I think it's, it's me that's, me or you that's that's had to change it's not those people who were just had the confidence and boldness to be to be themselves yeah they they, they were already ahead of the game you yeah. know i mean although as i have always said i'm not interested in drag race because i hate reality shows i can't <laughs> stand them i never will be able to stand them so that's that that's a me thing but that's i always make saying on the show a very important whatever i say is a judgment on me and me only you can do whatever <laughs> you want fine i I root for Tottenham Hotspur. That's a terrible judgment I made when I was younger. And I'm still <laughs> dealing with it now, as you, as you yeah. can tell. So for you, I mean, what was your, your kick to get interested in, in, journal, in sports journalism particularly? Yeah, well, when I was at school, um, I think one of my best friends started a blog about um, soccer. Well, we are dating ourselves now. We're starting blogs. I know. I know. Started a blog. So this would have been 20... 2010, 2000. Yeah, that's when I started mine. So yeah, that kind I'm of seeing time. myself in your story here. <laughs> um, and to be honest, I think when he first did it, like I mostly just took the piss out of him um, and was like, "Who's going to read this? Uh, who cares what you think?" Um, and um, he, he he sort of carried on, and then he was like, "Oh, will you write something? Will you write something?" So I did. So I did, and then I. I actually just sent the link, the, a link of the article I'd written um, to a guy called Lee Clayton, who was the head of sport at the Daily Mail um, at the time. I think it was just on Twitter. 
Um, and he sent me back a, a, an email that was, that I still have it now actually, um, that was, you know, over a thousand words long in reply with loads of advice and tips told me, oh, you know, you should read this guy, you should read that guy, you know, um, telling me, you know, what makes a good journalist. Um, and then he said at the end of it, you know, if you ever want to come in for a few days on a bit of, to, for a bit of uh, experience in the office, um, then then please do. And that was that was the trigger, you know, until then I'd never, you know, I think I think I'd been like that weird kid. My parents always say like I was that weird kid when we'd be on um, vacation. Um, I'm really Americanizing myself here, aren't I? When, when I'm on when we were on holiday, um, you, could, you could I mean, I, I get it. I've I've watched enough British shows to understand these things. You can, um, you, if I have to translate, I can do that. It's not it's not um, a, it's not an issue. And there will be plenty of people in Britain who are like, "Why are you doing this? Why are you Americanizing it?" I know he's American, but you know, I mean, do I have yeah. to say like I watch British game shows? I watch Top Gear religiously. It's okay. Um, so when we'd go on holiday, I remember sort of being in front of a um, of a TV screen that had all the results. Um, that, that were uh, on the night of some, some games and then I'd buy the, paper, the newspaper the next day and I'd be like that, that weird little seven-year-old kid that would be pretending to be the newsreader and just like reading off these scores one after another like Ipswich 1, Manchester United 0 and Stoke 2, Wickham 1 and I, it was like almost like my way of discovering the geography of the UK and the history and culture of the UK like so much of the reading that I did as a kid was football journalism. So I was almost like falling for it subconsciously for quite a while. It would always, like, if I was reading books as a kid, it would always be like either football autobiographies or books about football. Um, so I was taking, I was consuming it a lot without ever thinking like, oh, that could be me one day. Um, so it was only really when I got, you know, that lovely email back that I thought, okay, let's go and see what it's like. And I went in for five days and it was, it, you know, just totally compelling as, as an experience. Um, and I just kept going back and kept going back um, while I was at, while I was finishing first high school and then university. Um, and then I was very lucky that because I had that period where I was living abroad as well as a student, I could do some, you know, I could offer interviews and, and features when I was living in Paris or Barcelona. And I was quite, you know, I was very driven with it as well. And I made, you know, I made sacrifices. I probably spent, you know, I probably spent more than I earned at times in terms of making sure I got to places and placing myself in an environment where I could, you know, really maximize whatever opportunities um, w would come my way. But it was also just a huge amount of fun. Like you're 19, I was 19, 20 and getting, you know, really nice spreads in, in, uh, in a newspaper. So it was, it was a lot of fun and, and, and a massive adrenaline boost. And every time you get one hit of it, you want another hit of it. Um, so it's an incredibly addictive environment, I think, as well. It definitely is. And, I mean, for me, it's sometimes when you get to say your name out when you're doing a game, mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun. And, and there's still something about seeing your name in a, in a place where you wouldn't otherwise see your name going, yeah, I wrote that. That's fun. There are some times when I, I try to... You know, it's writing is not the thing I do more often than, say, broadcasting. I, mm. I prefer broadcasting, but, I mean, there are times when I'll go in and I'll just, I'll be a journalist. I'll go in a press box and cover a game, and, you know, you get to see your name on a byline, wherever it may be, and you go, well, that's, that's cool. I wrote that. I, I got to, mm -hmm. and also, as I said, you get to go to the games for free, and they give you free food. It's not bad. <laughs> 
I, I, well, also, I mean, also, like, journalists are just massive egomaniacs. I mean, we are. We are. We are. Definitely we egomaniacs. Are. I mean... We're also <laughs> highly competitive, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think competitive both with ourselves and with other people. Um, and I think that's quite, I think that's quite healthy. Um, I think one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was to, uh, um, was to take the job seriously, but don't take yourself seriously, um, which I often fail at. Um, but I think that's probably the best advice, you know, take the work you're doing seriously, but don't, don't believe, you know, that you are a superstar at any point. Well, I think the important thing is to know is that when you're a journalist or a broadcaster, remember, you're not the thing that people, I mean, people yeah. like to read your work, but you're, they're not reading it because you wrote it or because you're the play-by-play man. You're, you're, you're there to help tell the story of the things exactly. that people are genuinely interested in. That as much as we'd like to think they're interested in us, that they're not. You have to yeah. be a certain level of amazing in order to get to that level. And, you know, when we're in our position, we're not yet. Yeah, and I, th- I think also it, it, there's something counterintuitive about that because increasingly, you know, whatever profession you're in, you're encouraged to sort of develop your personal brand. Um, and that's, you know, one of the big things of social media, isn't it? Whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram or Twitch or whatever you're on, TikTok, um, there's this big thing of de- people developing their personal brand, which of course lends people to. I suppose, see themselves as, as, you know, almost an individual company. And we see that with athletes as well. Um, but also I think it's definitely become a thing with journalists. You know, journalists are more valuable to publications if they have bigger followings on social media, um, for example. That's, you know, there's no secret in that. Um, so it is important at the same time. But I think also, you know, you have to be able to step away and, and laugh at yourself as well sometimes. It's it's a balance. And may I ask what that those first blogs were about? I'm genuinely curious. Um, honestly, I can't remember. Um, were they about Manchester United? Yeah, no, I'm trying to remember. Um, I, I remember us doing like a few discussion podcasts, and this would have been around the time of the 2011 Champions League final when Man United played Barcelona. I remember that Champions League final well, but not for uh, reasons that I think uh, most people would remember it. I remember it for uh, well, TV coverage. Well, I'll leave it at that <laughs> in, the, in the U.S. What happened? It, um, let's just say that um, they got Michael Strahan on. The game was on Fox, and they decided to have Michael Strahan compare football to football. It went about as well as you thought it would. <laughs> Oh, excellent. And this is Manchester United, Barcelona at Wembley. I mean, gigantic Champions League final. We all know it was peak Barcelona against the end of, obviously, the glory years for Manchester United, and that's how it was broadcast in the U.S. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, it, it happens. We can, I can laugh at it now, looking back at it the past, now that I see how, I mean, you see it now because you, you talk with the U.S. soccer writers every day how different that was. Like, when I started getting into it, you know, I was in Barcelona during the 2010 World Cup. I mean, that's one place you'd love to get educated on soccer mm. is at that specific moment in history. It was great fun. Uh, and then, I mean, just to watch then when I started getting into now when it's ubiquitous and everybody wants a piece of it. It's amazing just to think about it from that regard, right? Because when I started watching the Premier League, I had to do illegal streams to get it on most days. And now it's like it's more accessible than it is in the UK. Yeah. Which is which is amazing to think about. Uh, the other part I wanted to ask you about is that so you're, you're in college or university and you're covering mm. these games in your Barcelona and, and, PS, and Paris. What are you covering? I was, I, 
almost slipped and said PSG. I don't know if you covered them at that point, but what were you covering when you were in those places? I remember doing, I did sort of quite a few, in, I would just write to clubs in, when I was living in Spain saying, oh, you know, can I come and interview this player? Um, and then I would let, you know, email in the Daily Mail saying, oh, I can do this interview with this player. Do you want to do that? Um, um, and, and often they said yes. So I was very lucky. I mean, I did quite a bit when I was out there. I think I interviewed uh, sort of friends and family of David De Gea. This was like around the time that he was just sort of really emerging at Man United. Well, isn't that star. interesting that you mentioned that right now? In this particular we are, yeah, history. Yeah, good timing. But at the time, he was really emerging as the star of as the star of the show. And I think I did a. I was very lucky. I was able to spend about three or four days um, with Bojan Kirkic, who at the time was recovering from a serious knee injury. Um, and he was playing for Stoke City at the time, but he was li- he'd gone home to do his re- recuperation in Barcelona. Um, and I developed a relationship with his, uh, with his dad. Um, and I was able to then go and spend three days basically shadowing his rehab and that showed me the house that he lives in there, which is incredible because they had, he has this museum of um, memorabilia. And I wonder you... what memorabilia he'll have from his time with Montreal. <laughs> I wonder well, I wonder that greatly. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously at that point, he'd been at Barcelona, Ajax, Roma, I think, I think as well. Playing at Roma, yeah. Um, but, the, I mean, what he, after Champions League games, he would swap shirts. And I think he had Iniesta's shirt and Ronaldinho's shirt and Paul Scholes' shirt. Um, just lined up one after another, and then he'd have the boots that he scored his first Barcelona goal with. And pe- people forget, I'm a little bit biased towards him because he's been very, very, very good to me um, over, over the years. But people do forget like the impact he had when he first came through at Barcelona um, what was absolutely massive. Um, and I think he scored over 40 goals for them. Um, so... That, that was like an amazing experience and, you know, something that was very cool to do as well at that time. And then when I, when I was in Paris, um, I remember I went the day after the attacks on the Charlie Hebdo officers. Was that 20, um, wasn't that 2015? That was 2015. So he, yeah, 2015. Now, I think I, I, yeah, so I got there the next day and obviously it was an incredibly tense environment. Um, um, but I think, but I think when I was out there, I remember doing sort of a couple of France games, which um, and just the security around any fixtures um, at that time, particularly for the national team, was huge. And it was, very, you know, very, uh, very interesting time to be to be in the city, and also very, just a very tense time to be a, a mass event because there was, you know, there was this real anxiety of whether some, you know, God forbid, something like that would happen again. Now, we, going to mass events brings on a different kind of anxiety, although that's easing a little bit. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a good point because you get to cover this sport and how it intersects with life at so many different places and so many different angles and you know, bring up memories of things that I, I think for a lot of us, we go like, oh, yeah, right, that happened. Well, I, I, th- I, think, I think that's one of like, I don't know, I mean, most of the things that have happened in my life, I can relate to a football match that was happening on the same day or the same weekend. Um, almost always, I remember, you know, if someone says, oh, do you remember that weekend? I'd be like, don't remember that much about the weekend, but I do remember what the school was that day. Um, you sound like me, because I used to, because I had, I had times in life where I'm like, oh, right, my, my beloved NFL team lost that weekend, as they do most every weekend. 
London's <laughs> team. London's team. I say that I as would... derisively as humanly possible because I'm, <laughs> sick, I'm sick of it. Absolutely sick of it. Although I do find it highly ironic that the Jaguars now have to play at Tottenham Stadium this year. I, I do find that greatly ironic in only the sixth sense of if you are a root for the Jaguars and Tottenham, but regardless <laughs> of that. Um, so now I want to get to some of these, these amazing stories you've written mm. that directly connect with your personal identity. And I first want to talk about this one you just wrote, uh, interviewing so many amazing people in the, in the Polish LGBTQ community about their experiences on the eve of the Europa League final. Uh, what was it like to write that story? Because we've heard, of course, how Poland is one of the worst countries in the world now, particularly in Europe, for the LGBTQ community. And sadly, there's a long list of contenders for that title. Uh, and you're writing it in the sense of, should we be, should UEFA, should we be giving these prestigious events to countries that do this? I mean, we're going to have Euro- European Championship games in Azerbaijan, and they're not great either. You know, Hungary's having games in the in the euros as well and there are a lot of countries and places around the world sadly and of course the world cup's going to be in qatar where this is an issue and what would you what was your the process of writing that story and did you did you get anything out of it different than what you thought going into it um yeah it was interesting i think it was a couple of months ago actually i just sort of noticed all the finals in gdansk that's poland um poland's not great to be gay at the moment um and then actually just sometimes when you, you know, you have an idea and then time gets away because you're working on other things and then football clubs do crazy things like start a super league. So even more of your time um, starts to disappear. Oh, I, I, oh, I forgot. I have to talk about that later too. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Um, and I think it was only like last week I just sort of picked, you know, started doing a bit of Googling and then I saw there'd been this attack um, actually in Gdansk, which is the city that hosted the final um, and it was on I mean, an LGBT sports team. It's barely even a sports team, really. It was just a, a group of LGBT people who get together and do like work, outdoor workouts during COVID um, because obviously gyms uh, gyms had been closed. So it was just you know a space where uh, gay people could come and you know do a few burpees and um, and a bit of a, a bit of a workout. But actually, it became. A bit more of a community thing like um the, the organizer said that you know one of his female friends brought her eight-year-old daughter along a couple of older uh older couples came along it was just a nice community thing but it was it was a you know it was a rainbow event um and a few i think two months ago they were doing their session one wednesday night and a group of 25 plain clothed um What's the right word? Thugs came along and, and I would and, use morons, but yeah, well, we can have, idiots. We can we can have both. Um, they they came along and, and attacked them, and two of the two of the victims were left in hospital, broken teeth, uh, spinal injuries, um, and you know. So I thought oh, I'll speak to those people who were injured and just see you know how they feel to be living in Poland at the moment and um, what it means to be gay in Poland at the moment. And so I I spoke to um, Andy, who was one of the guys attacked, and his partner, Daniel, um, and then also spoke to a couple of people in Warsaw and then a couple of people who didn't want to be named as well. Um, And talking to all of them, it just built this picture of it just being sort of almost heartbreakingly bleak, really. you know, as a 
as a very sort of quick whirlwind of what it's like in Poland at the moment. Well, you can't you can't marry. There's no civil partnership. Um, you can at the moment if you're in a uh, same-sex relationship adopt, but you have to circumvent it by pretending to be single and not being in a relationship. But they're actually now they've drafted a bill that would make that a criminal offence as well. Um, and then on top of that, they make it very, very difficult for same-sex couples to buy properties together. It's almost like you have to set up a third-party company in order to do so. Um, and on top of that, you have this just wave of anti, anti-LGBT uh, rhetoric that has dominated Polish discourse. It was a huge part of the uh, election campaign last year, the ruling party really aggressive on it, really close with the Catholic Church, very, very interwoven in terms of very socially conservative values. Um, and uh, yeah, just an incredibly bleak picture. And, and, and you yeah, know, really important people in Poland saying really damaging things. You have archbishops describing it as the rainbow plague. And you had the guy who is now, I think, the education minister um, saying that it, that LGBT ideology, which is the word they are, they so often use, I don't know what that means. LGBT ideology um, was, you know, is, comes from the same place as Hitler's um, national socialism. I mean, it's just completely absurd. And then you have the president of the country, uh, Dude, President Duda, saying that LGBT ideology is more dangerous than communism was to Poland, and it's like really, really extreme uh, rhetoric that. I think in some ways enables um, and creates a hostile environment that, that means that those sort of violent attacks uh, can happen and that those people who commit those atrocities are emboldened. Um, and and the, what's, what's also very difficult is in Poland, there's no census data on how many people identify as LGBT. And they also don't record attacks on the LGBT community as uh, hate motivated crime so it's very hard to record both the number of people who are LGBT and also how many attacks there are which is almost intentionally vague but all I can say is every single gay person I spoke to in Poland and there was quite a few by the end they each had a story of a physical assault not just feeling uncomfortable not just um, verbal insults but actually of being physically assaulted and that was you know just just really quite surprising. So, so it doesn't end up becoming, in the end, oh, UEFA should take these finals out of Poland to, to punish them for this. It becomes more of a, just a story simply of this is what it's like. And it leaves it open to the reader. Like, should we be giving prestigious events to these places? Yeah, look, I, th- I think look, I think we are, a sports pu- we are a sports publication, so there had to be a sports hook to this story. Um, and the UEFA have awarded the final to Gdansk. So as part of this report, I studied, which are these things are publicly available, the bid evaluation reports that Poland put in um, a couple of years ago. Um, and it made no, it had a lot of different considerations like quality of hotels, the quality of commercial considerations, copyright law, all that kind of thing. No mention at all of what's it like from a human rights perspective. And it was the same with uh, Baku in, in Azerbaijan for the 2019 Europa League final, which Arsenal and Chelsea played. Um, and then, you know, you start to notice a bit of a pattern, don't you? You've got the World Cup in Russia, you've got the World Cup in Qatar, the 2024 European Championships 
Um, Turkey, who are also ranked incredibly low for uh, LGBT people, um, got down to the final two of the bidding process. I don't think LGBT rights were considered at any point in those discussions. And look, there's a there's a very fair argument to say, look, it's you know it's a game of football, and we can't just have finals in the places that I consider to be acceptable, right? Like because you know there's lots of people across the world who will argue that Britain or the United States do very bad things at certain times um, and fund people that many people would consider countries or uh, states or organizations that you know would be deemed to be problematic there'd be people who argue that the prime minister of the uk has said things that are racist or islamophobic or um or offensive to women at, at different points so it's you know it's where do you where do you draw the line and i totally appreciate that so my argument wasn't let's not have this event in poland my argument is this event has been awarded to Poland. Let's use that as an opportunity to not only give the prestige and privilege that comes to a, to a host nation government when they are able to host such an event, because there is a lot of that. There's a lot of international kudos associated with it. Um, but let's also put them under the microscope and highlight the things that may not be so good. Um, and that's when people always say, well, well, you know, keep the politics out of football. Well, when, you know, when UEFA's own bid evaluation report says that the Polish Football Association wants to use this event to prove that the country of Poland is capable of, of hosting state-of-the-art international events, I therefore think it becomes absolutely justified to start looking at political considerations. And I think that's then even further amplified when you consider that Football across Europe, I would say across the world, has a major issue when it comes to LGBT. Men, men's football has a major issue when it comes to the place of LGBT people being able to be visible. Um, and, you know, UEFA's own website has quotes from the president, Alexander Seferin, saying that it wants UEFA to be at the forefront of global social equality. Well, this week, I asked them what their view was on. Um, you know, the situation for LGBT people in Poland and they had nothing to say. So I wish so we had say, more to say about it, but that's just soccer. That's soccer at the highest levels. They say they care, but, you know, you look at their actions. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, and, you know, did I expect UEFA to say anything? No. Did I expect Manchester United when I asked that, you know, when I offered them the opportunity to comment to say anything? No, um, and that's that's a difficult thing because a lot of organisations talk very well about you know what they do on a corporate level, and I think a lot of the people in corporate positions at football clubs mean incredibly well. They they do want to stimulate change, but when it comes to action, those things that can really stimulate conversation um, and and have a real impact, they don't take it. They don't take it. It's taken them a long time to get there on, on issues of racism. You know, I, I, I often, you know, when, when I, you know, when I did the story this week and I was just waiting, you know, just waiting for someone involved in football to bring it up. No one did. Um, and I was just thinking about colleagues of mine, of people of colour um, who have worked relentlessly for decades, you know, 
always having to be the journalist doing the story about racism, you know, trying to trying to get their voices heard and listened to and 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 so that to those who have you know real positions of influence and, and get the change that they that they want and they need and being ignored and just made me realize what well, one I hadn't done enough as an ally to support those people um, over the years um, and also you know increasingly it just feels as though certainly in sports journalism that it's just like you know, a few gay sports journalists who are having to do a lot of the legwork on this. Um, and, you know, do I want to do I want to write like five traumatic pieces each year about what it's like to be gay in football? No, not really. Um, but increasingly, it feels like, well, if we don't do it, who is? I, I've said that to one of my friends who is one of the most visible allies and, and, uh, and you know, also somebody who's out and who talks about this in another sport. Yeah. And I told them. And he, every time something happens that's mildly homophobic, he has to go and answer, like, why is this happening? What can we do to make it better? And he was texting me in frustration, like, I got to keep doing this. And I said, you know, it sucks. I wish there's going to be a day where you don't have to be the only one answering these questions. But then he also brought up something that I said to him. And I said, if not you, then who? Mm. Because at some point, you know, you have to, the, some of the people have to understand, like, it might not be something you want to do, but... You know, for you and your and your colleagues, like it is very important that we write about this and write about it from a perspective that is lived in. And sometimes that means you're going to have to keep writing these stories. And t totally. And, and I think, you know, like I would say in the UK, we have uh, I'll just highlight two people in particular. There's Jack Murley at the BBC who does a, you know, I think he does a weekly podcast with LGBT people working around sport. And, and that's fantastic visibility on the BBC. And also there's John Holmes at Sky, um, who does an incredible amount of work on, you know, whether it's fan groups, which are LGBT, or whether it's sports that are, um, you know, some of the you know, less popular sports, but where people have had the confidence to come out. And he gives those people visibility. Um, I, I go about it slightly differently. Um, and that's not to take away whatsoever. You know, the, the value of what those guys do is, is incredible and incredibly grateful to them. Uh, for doing it, my my approach is probably a little bit more commercial to a certain extent. In that, I always any story that I do, I I want you know I treat the same as a story that I would do about you know how I don't know the inside story of how Donny Van Der Beek signed for Manchester United or something like that. I'm thinking not only of you know, what is the right thing here ethically, but also what is this commercially an interesting thing for us? Is this something that's going to, you know, drive interest and in subscribers and engage our readers and, and all of those things? Because, you know, that's, you have to, you can't just write for yourself. Um, and I feel like I've done, I, you know, the story I did this week had a lot, of, a lot of traction. So it was clearly, it was clearly of interest. So I, I prefer to do three or four, you know, sort of big hits a year that are impactful. Um, uh, and, and deep and maybe a bit shocking um, but at the same time you, you know you have to have those people working relentlessly like John and Jack and the guys at um, the Outsports in the States um, with Sid Ziegler am I right? Yes. Yeah who, who do like, incredible stuff relentlessly and, and that's, that is like so that is so important um, and really you know really what I do is I just sort of ride in every 
four or five months with one thing and, and then disappear for a few months and whinge a lot on Twitter in the meantime about it. Well, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that there is room for the daily stuff and there's room for the bigger stuff. And that allows you to write the piece that you wrote about yeah. Justin Fashanu, and I wanted to get to that because it is, it is a truly amazing piece. You have it pinned to your Twitter profile, so if people want to read it, they can. But it's, it's an amazing piece. And I would rather have somebody like you write that and build up to it because otherwise, again, I mean, as, as great as some of these people are, they can't do that like heavy-duty feature-type work that takes months to report and do all these interviews and put it together and make it presentable. You know, those, those stories, as somebody who's written them, they take a long time and a lot of effort. You know, they look great, and you read them, and sometimes, you know, the best example of that story is when you read it and you're like, okay, I got to take a break, I got to do something else, and then pick mm -hmm. up. Cause they're, but they're, they're meaty, there's a lot of meat on the bone there. And, I mean, that's a great example of, of a story that you've written that is, again, like, who else is going to write that? You yeah. know? Well, I, th I, th I think that's also a privilege of the platform that we have. Um, as well, you know, which lends itself to, to to long reads. You know, most people don't have that much space to play with, or the format of their website is they might have the space, but that's just not how things things are done. So, you know, I'm very conscious there. Like other people could in th could in theory do it. I, I think what's what I find a little bit frustrating in the UK is like that there isn't. I, I I don't think there's homophobia at all, really, in sports journalism at all. But what we don't have are the incidents because, because when you're not visible and you're not represented within sport, of course those incidents aren't happening. So whereas, and, and I, I really, I want to stress, I really don't mean this as like pitting homophobia against racism. I'm just using as an example, um, you know, the, we, the amount of incidents that we have affecting uh, those who participate in in sport in terms of racism are incredibly high. Um, and that therefore lends itself to obvious hooks for coverage. Whereas the, the challenge for um, LGBT people in, in men's football, um, not G, GB uh, people in men's, in men's football is, is different. It's because there's no visibility, the emphasis has to be on what are we doing everything possible to challenge clubs on, are they creating the most welcoming environment possible? What are we doing to be the most inclusive that we can? Uh, and those hooks can be hard to find as a journalist to make that piece interesting without it just descending into how long is it going to be until there's a gay footballer? Um, I was which gonna, is what it I was so often becomes. Yeah, because there's, there's, when was this? Was this a couple years ago when we had that Twitter account? That was like, I am a gay footballer in the championship and I'm going to come out in five days or whatever it was. And it turned out to be a hoax, which we all should have known better. Was that two years ago? I can't remember at this point. The pandemic screwed up my memory. Yeah. That was, was a big story for a, like a hot minute. Yeah. And it was taken very seriously. And radio stations gave it significant coverage. And, people, you know, it's a hard thing because what are you meant to do in that situation, right? In, our, in my position as a... Well, how did you react to it at that point? Like, what, what were you, when you're seeing these tweets and you're seeing people talk about it on, you know, on talk sport and, you know, in, in old, in other spaces, you know, what are you, how are you reacting to that? Because when I saw it, I'm like, I want this to be real, but I kind of know this is not how this is done. This doesn't work like this. You know, that's how I viewed it. 
But also, I, I, I can see in, in Britain that this would be taken differently because the culture is so different you yeah. know, compared to how it is. In the, and we're not good in the U.S. by any means. Let's make no bones about mm-hmm. it. But, you know, it's, such a, it's different. So maybe I viewed it differently from an American perspective as opposed to somebody like you who's, who's lived it differently. Yeah, I, I was incredibly skeptical, um, which is easy to say now that, you know, obviously it all fell apart. But I, it, it just it seemed a very odd way of going about it and, and all that kind of thing. And look, I mean, we just all don't know, do we? Like, for all we know, it could have been genuine and there could still be someone out there who was behind that Twitter account who's still not comfortable enough to be themselves. Um, it, it was, I found it quite an uncomfortable week. Um, to be honest, I thought certain journalists, you know, were claiming to be in contact with the person and all that sort of thing. And it, it just seemed quite odd, the sort of the way that it developed during the week. And, and it didn't surprise me at all when it, you know, when it fell apart. I mean, there's there's organizations that I, I think also increase, you know, increasingly, you know, I'm a guy in my mid 20s living in London and you know, without being too open, you know, I know quite a lot of gay people, um, both in London and in Manchester, around the age group that footballers are. And, you know, I don't think it would take very long within our community for it to be known that, you know, if the, if there was an LGBT person who was quite active in the community for that, you know, for that to get around um, because of the, the nature of it. Um, so I think, it, you know, I think when someone comes out you know, even people talk, oh, well, who are they going to do the interview with and stuff like that? I mean, increasingly, I just think it will be a social media post. Um, and people will, you know, increasingly athletes want to, um, you know, control their own story and their own narrative and say things on their own terms. I think even when the when the British diver Tom Daly um, came out, he, he did it as a video, I think, on YouTube. Um, and I think that's increasingly the, the way it's going and that's entirely their decision well there will be interviews i mean there will be tons of there'd, there'd be but... there'd be subsequent interviews but i mean the first coming out it, it it all depends on the person it depends on you know the club that they play for i mean maybe it's done through a club platform if it's mm-hmm. a player at a certain club but if it's somebody in a you know in a championship club that the average fan is not thinking about in the same way you know it's different if it's happening at tottenham compared to barnsley you know, there, there's so many different layers to this, and I, and I don't think any one story can be indicative of what somebody else's is going to look like. You know, I could think of the ones that came out over here, and they were very different, probably, to the ones that will eventually happen in Britain, because we know there are gay players that currently play high-level English soccer. It's impossible for there not to be, because just raw numbers and statistics, but it'll be, it'll be quite different, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, Maybe. I mean, I mean... Well, I, I don't love this. Dis- I don't love the. I don't mean this discussion is in me and you. I don't love this general thing of you know when will they come out, how will they come out, all that kind of thing. Well, because... I don't either. But I, I think for me, the the whole thing is not to say like there. To me, it's always saying there is one. Let's make the environment safe for that person to exactly be as safely as possible at the current moment. I when I want them to come out publicly, but you know, if they're not feeling in a place where they can even be out privately, then there's no point. You know, well, and, and, and exa- that's what exactly. the is. Exactly, and I think that's why, you know, the coverage I'd love to see more of from my, you know, from my straight colleagues as well is 
holding clubs to account? You know, what are they doing to educate, to help the education of kids on LGBT issues in their academies, for example? Um, what are they doing in terms of a path? Do they have a specified pathway within their club for a player to come out? Do they have an action plan in place or is it all going to be reactionary? Because they should be being proactive on it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things like, there's a lot of issues like that. You know, I think, man, I think managers, uh, head coaches, anyone who is in contact with players should be put through in the same way as they get anti-racism education classes that should be specific um, classes on how to create the most welcoming and inclusive environment for LGBT people. Because, and if that feels like it's all a bit too much, it has to go above and beyond at this point because sport is by definition not not currently a safe space for um, for LGBT for for gay males to be themselves. It's and that, it's not I, you know, it, by definition it can't be because we we don't see it. We see change slowly but at a snail's pace uh, but i'm saying in english soccer in french soccer in spanish soccer um you know it's not just it's not just english football and, and that i mean that's the other challenge as well you know we, we're changing an entire we're trying to change an entire sporting culture um that is built on you know tropes of masculinity and stereotypes that, that come around that um so there's, there's all sorts of structural changes that need to happen beyond just football and in society. And I often say, like, you know, in the UK, you know, we've had a couple of rugby players that have come out as gay, but it's not like rugby is, you know, um, has gay men coming out of their ears at the moment. You know, they've had one or two examples over a very long period of time. It's one player in cricket. Um, tennis? No. Golf? No. So... Yes, this is football, but it's also there's, there's a broader societal issue at play, and I don't love create you know when I say oh it's a bigger society issue because that makes it all a bit vague and it stops you know specific things that you can do to improve things, um, but but it's true. It takes a long time to unpack it, and nobody is out here going and saying it's going to be a short process, and even. But I'm I impatient. Think... Are you? I, well, I'm I mean, really I, impatient. Listen, I mean, I remember the days when Robbie Rogers and Colin Martin came mm. out and how big a deal it was. You know, it, it was a huge deal for me. It was a huge deal for a lot of people. And those are days that you're always going to remember. And the day when somebody in English soccer or even notable athletes come out is a really big day, you know, and we have to work towards it. You know, it's, it's working towards anything. That... But, but, I, but I think that's why, you know, I, I look at it as like, as journalists, let's try and control the controllables to a certain extent. So this week, there's a final in Gdansk UEFA, Manchester United, they say that they are huge advocates of LGBT rights, of LGBT people. An opportunity for them comes along to, 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 to really have an impact. And they didn't take it. Um, and and that, that, to me, is, is sad. And, and it's why L, LGBT people, for me, it still feels in, in a lot of men's clubs and men's football in the UK, that it's seen as like, it's nice to have, it's nice to have, but it's not, it's not a real priority. You get the, do you get the sense that it kind of feels like, oh, if we do that, we get public brownie points, you know, that kind of thing? I, I, th I think the, 
motivations behind it are sincere, you know, um, and then we do the Rainbow Laces campaign, so that's four or five weeks each year. No, I don't think it's that long. I think it's two or three weeks each year, and you get a bit of coverage around that. And, and I think the club's willingness to participate in that has improved a lot from where it was at the start. You know, where it was at the start was, I think there was only Jerry Barton was the only player who would like talk in. Oh, um, that's that. that it, oh, it's like it's. I'm going to make a comparison you might not get, but the hockey fans in the audience listening to this again, it's like Sean Avery being the, the greatest advocate of LGBTQ rights in, in hockey for mm. a sport that is very, very homophobic. And you're like, wait, what? Who now? What? How did we get there? <laughs> Joey, yeah. Bar- Joey Barton. Um, look up Joey Barton. He has a funny history. Um, again, I promised I wouldn't get too soccer nerd, and it's come back to us anyway. There's nothing we could. We're too soccer nerds. There's nothing we can do here. We <laughs> have to get to but, it at some point. But th- that's the best example I can give. You know, that but, it would be analogous. Yeah, so it started, you know, Barton was very, was great at the start, but as time's gone on, you now have, you know, for example, on The Athletic last year, um, Alex, my colleague, he basically messaged every Premier League club and he said, I want you to give me a player who will talk about uh, LGBT people and helping to create a more welcoming space and just saying it's okay to be gay. <laughs> will they do? Will they do that? And to be honest, we didn't really expect clubs to necessarily come back because the story over many years has been that there's club that players are too scared to do it because if you're seen to be an ally, then you're seen in some way by some supporters as possibly being gay yourself, um, which is absurd, but that's that's the, been the perception. And actually, a lot of clubs provided players, but it always tends to be the same players. Um, that's the new pattern that we're noticing. You know, it'll be Jordan Henderson at Liverpool. It'll be Connor Cody at Wolves. Um, it'll be Hector Bellerin at Arsenal. Um, it's, you know, I think it's quite matter at Manchester United. You know, uh, there isn't necessarily the variety and depth of voices, um, but it's still better. It's better than it was from, from that point of view. It's important that, you know, people like Jordan Henderson, captain of club and country, um, is, making the, is making these points you know, persuasively and in a sincere way. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it's edging better, um, but it's still very much, you know, we talk about it for three or four weeks, then we forget about it, and then maybe Pride Month comes along and one or two people mention it, and then it's Rainbow Laces again. And, you know, I think if we get to Rainbow Laces this year and people say what progress has been made over the past year, it's tough. Tough to, to to find, you know, real real points of progress. I think where what I would say is there's some fantastically organised um, LGBT fan groups, you know, that help create a space and community um, where supporters of Premier League, Championship, League One clubs can get together and socialise, and football can be for them. Um, but there's still a lot of LGBT people who you know go to football and say, you know, they wouldn't feel safe holding their partner's hand or, um, you know, they're always sort of looking over their shoulder a little bit if they're with their partner. So there's, there's a long way to go. And it's, you know, I think we've probably, everyone's fallen a little bit into the trap during the pandemic of, you know, the only abuse that remains is on social media. Um, I think we do this with racism to a certain extent as well. And then actually football clubs reopened their stadiums last week and, Rio Ferdinand was a was a pundit on the for television, and he was racially abused in person by 
a fan at, at Wolverhampton uh, against Manchester United. So, you know, we're dealing with different layers of hostility um, across, you know, different forms of oppression. And things are getting, I think things are getting better in terms of awareness, but there's still, there's still a lot of hostility out there. It's going to take a long time to unpack. And I think it's very interesting with English soccer because it is so ubiquitous. It's kind of like the NFL, and just because it feels like it is the national thing. Mm. Like all these other sports, it's great. You know, I, I appreciate Tom Daly. I appreciate my friend Zach Sullivan who came out in hockey at England. But again, you know, this is this is not English soccer. This is not the thing. You know, all of it's nice, and we're not gonna. You know, I'm not gonna make perfect the enemy of good, and you're not gonna make perfect the enemy mm. of good. But. Again, there, it's, gonna, it's going to take time, but it's incumbent upon not just us to do that. It's actually incumbent on putting the pressure on the clubs to do it. And I think they're, they're and, and the people in the game actually making that step. And it's happening slowly. Could happen faster, obviously. We'd like it to. Um, I would like to be, I would be interested to see what they, these clubs do during, during Pride Month, because that's coming up now. You know, they're going to tweet very happily when their players do well in the Euros. Are they going to do something, you know, when it comes to supporting their, their supporters during Pride Month? Are they going to make appearances, say, in Pride Parades? What would happen in London? Are these clubs going to make appearances? Because I've seen teams do that over here. I mean, and it's, and it's nice. You know, we have things in, in the U.S., I know you know this, Pride Nights, where mm. they put out rainbow-colored T-shirts, and, it's, and they'll have a gay anthem singer, and they'll play, you know... I, I was going to pick stereotypically gay things. They'll play Lady Gaga during a TV timeout, and then, you know, we all go home, and then Star Wars night. I mean, it's nice, but can we do more? You know, mm. that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think, I think it's hard for clubs as well to know what it is they should do. Um, you know, like, what are the things that would be most meaningful? I think that, yeah, you know, I understand that. Um, you know, the things I always say to them are, as I said earlier in the podcast, education in academies, education for head coaches. You know, if I'm, if I'm a player in my, you know, even, in, you know, it might be, I might be 17 years old, I could be 35 years old. So I'm going to my head coach. And, you know, some head coaches are a bit scary, you know, off reputation. Uh, as we begin to wrap this up, <laughs> because this has been an amazing hour plus of discussion, uh, what is there a story about you know LGBTQ issues in, in soccer that you haven't written yet that you'd like to? Is there an angle you'd like to take? Is there a particular person you'd like to highlight that you know about? Is there anything? Is there what, what's that next story? That next big feature that's going to come out start of the Premier League season mm-hmm. that you you like to be able to write? I think it's probably a, a bit of a bit more of what I, what I've been the two things I've been pushing in terms of can we. And this 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 all sounds a bit LGBT agenda, um, but you know, can we actually? You know, I we I had a meeting with the Premier League three or four years ago now, where they invited did like a roundtable of um, of LGBT journalists and just sort of taking our views. And I think at the time I was at the Daily Mail, and you know, we're being asked, you know, what would you like to see happen? Um, what things do you think would be good? It was all just about starting a discussion, and I, and I said then, you know the two things that I think could have the most significant impact long-term, you know, moving the discussion away from what, when is X going to come out is clubs have to have the policies and the structures in place 
and that means significant education um, for head coaches and um, also in academies, both educating the participants and the educators, whether that's coaches or support staff. Um, and that, that, that's boring. That's boring. You know, those are really boring suggestions, but they are without doubt in my mind, the two things that have the potential to most significantly change the culture um, of, of, of the environment. Um, and I would like, you know, I would like to push the Premier League and the FA to make those things completely mandatory. And I don't, what I don't mean is, I don't mean this with any disrespect at all to, you know, Kick It Out, which is a fantastic organization, anti-discrimination organization. They do sessions that are, you know, it's, it's a mix of different uh, forms of discrimination and, you know, we're one part of it. Um, I think it needs to be, you know, it needs to be more specific. And, you know, I think organisations such as Stonewall UK should be going into every football club um, and providing the level of education that's, that's required to educators at every age, start, uh, at every age group, um, because I think that's, that's how you provoke change and working in tandem with local schools over, you know, the best way to provide that education in, in a sensible manner. Um, I think more broadly, you know, obviously World Cup next year is, a, is, you know, a bit like the Poland story. It's a fascinating story. I think it's important that that journalists use that moment in Qatar to shine a light. It doesn't, you know, I've never, I've never called for places not to be given sporting events. I don't believe in that. I don't, I don't believe in stripping places um, of, 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 a, of uh, the right to host based on um, human, on human rights. Um, I, I would, I would agree with not awarding it in the first place, but I wouldn't agree with stripping it, stripping it subsequently because you were aware of it at the time, weren't you really? Um, with, with Qatar, I just think it's, you know, what a fantastic opportunity to shine a light. I mean, you know, people always say, oh, how dare they give it Qatar? And I totally get it. I totally get that argument. But at the same time, I'm like, well, we will never get an opportunity otherwise to highlight the injustices of what it's like to be LGBT in Qatar. So let's use that. Let's use that to look back at, you know, the 2018 World Cup in Russia, where there was a fantastic performance by the Russian state for a month where... You know, everything was very laid back and everyone who went was coming back saying, oh, what a fantastic country Russia is, right? Without really mentioning what was going on in Chechnya um, and what it was like for, get, what it continues to be like for gay people in Russia and Chechnya. It's, you know, it's more violent, I think, than even than it is in Poland. Um, and, you know, I think there's probably a very good piece to be done almost just exposing that to a certain extent on... You know, we all clapped along for this one, this wonderful performance for four or five weeks when the World Cup was there. What happened when the show left town? Well, um, I find it kind of amusing because remember we did all that for Sochi and the Olympics, and then they invaded yeah. Crimea like two weeks later. I mean, yeah. it was that I, I remember that vividly. And the other story, I don't know because it's it's over here, but of course there's I know you know this. There's the homophobic chant for goalkeepers that they have in Mexico. And I've seen a lot of stories recently about how they're very, very much from the highest levels of the Mexican Federation trying to desperately to get it to stop. Mm -hmm. And we're hearing now, okay, no, we actually might kick you out for good, these fans, and we might get docked points. You know, like, is that something 
that might be needed down the line if fans continue to do these things or we see things that happen like homophobic incidents. Like, there's part of me that it was always thinks like, if your fans do these racist things during games, like, do we have to see like empty stadiums? We now know what games are like in empty stadiums. You know, is that something that could happen? Like, could you see points deductions? I mean. There's always like I, I don't I think met, I met. is is good, but it's it comes to mind when I hear what they're trying to do in Mexico to kick out a homophobic chant. Yeah, I think it's interesting, but it's quite interesting. It's a big difference with UK football. No one's really singing about gay. Well, people. I, I mean, I did see that one story. Like they they, they what was it? some soccer said that rent boy is not a gay slur, and I'm like, I yeah. I, so, I'm... so there's 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 probably two two issues with regards to chants. One is the Rent Boy chants at Chelsea, um, which has always been a song that's been used against Chelsea Football Club, um, and uh, sing about Chelsea Rent Boys, um, which is, you know, it's in 2021, it's clearly outdated. Most people, de- most people don't sing it, I don't think, with a homophobic intention. It's just the song that's been sung at Chelsea. Um, if that ma- Does that make sense? You don't yeah, yeah, and I, I think that will be phased out. And also, you know, I think the other thing is, you know, Brighton has long been seen as like probably one of the most welcoming places to be LGBT in the UK. And there's therefore, whenever teams play against Brighton, there's quite often chants about, um, you know, about people being gay or puffs or whatever. Um, so uh, that's another thing. But like, you know, for example, I was talking last week to a guy called Carl who is a member of the Gay Gooners, which is the LGBT branch of the Arsenal supporters group. And he was talking about a game at Brighton, um, it must have been the year before last, because there's been no fans in the stadium for a year, um, where there were songs about LGBT about LGBT community sung by Arsenal fans. I think he just turned around to these fans and said, can, can you stop it? You know, like, that's actually, you know, for some of us, that's actually really... We don't really want to hear it or we don't want to be around people singing it. And he said that those people did, did stop um, when, when they were asked to and when it was, you know, when it was people on their own side saying this is actually just not very nice. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think often it's mindless rather than when it's when it is like a significant amount of people chanting, it often feels to me quite mindless and thoughtless rather than a real intention to discriminate, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be called out and challenged. I do think one good thing that we are seeing is that these gay supporter groups are, are very big now. Like, they have a big platform for almost every major club has one, and they are quite visible, you know? And that's, and that's every... Yeah, oh, and, and, quite, and quite a few of them now have, you know, flags that are visible in stadiums. Tottenham's had it um, in their stadium... And that was great. I mean, I've seen it elsewhere, and that's good. I mean, like, that is a legitimate step that has been taken. Yeah, and that, I think that visibility is important, you know, particularly with how global the Premier League is as well. Um, because, that's the, you know, the, the other challenge for Premier League clubs is, you know, for example, I mean, the classic story is every time there's rainbow laces, you know, they post from certain language accounts, but not other language accounts. Um, uh, I think that's the other problem that is very tricky for the Premier League is like it's so different for the NFL because it's broadly US based yeah and but like there aren't people in Saudi Arabia watching that but for the Premier League I mean you have to be marketable in the Persian Gulf you have to be marketable in Russia you have to be marketable in other places where yeah. it might not be socially acceptable and I think that is very tricky 
for the for the Premier League to be able to balance it. But I think in the end, and I as we start to truly wrap this up, I mean we could go on forever. But <laughs> don't you think that the domestic concerns for the Premier League, like yes, this is a global brand, it's everywhere, and not everybody is going to see this campaign the same way. Uh, as they are in the UK, but don't you think in the end, like the domestic concerns, like the Premier League should be focused on how can we make this better in the UK first? Do you, do you, I mean, I know that kind of sounds jingoistic, but don't you think that that's kind of something they need to think about? Maybe like totally because because let, let's let's be let's be very clear and direct and honest about this. As things stand, the Premier League, the Football Association, the the organs of power in English football have failed to provide a sufficiently welcoming space for people to feel comfortable to work in their environment who are visibly visibly gay that you know that's what the evidence tells us so absolutely the priority should be are we doing everything in our power to make ourselves you know as supportive as we can and even if that means challenging certain markets i don't have an issue with it really um, you know those you know if I don't know, be in sport in Qatar is buying the rights to the Premier League. They are buying the Premier League product. The Premier League product is dictated by the clubs that are based, you know, based in, in, in the UK. Um, and the, you know, the broadcasters or uh, supporters across the world, they, they're choosing to follow that product. And I'm not saying they have no stake in it. I'm not saying they don't have the right to an opinion. But I, I don't agree with you know, pandering to, to homophobic outlooks <laughs> I mean, I, or, you know, or being less supportive on certain platforms. You know, what better way to, to, you know, possibly influence the world than actually challenging these views? And, you know, some people will say that's all a bit, you know, a bit like being white saviors and like, you know, when Americans in the UK go into the Middle East and try and save things and change things. And maybe it is. Maybe it is. But, but I mean, uh, I also find it like we, Qatar has spent millions and billions of euros and pounds on Paris Saint-Germain. And that's in soft power in the same way that the Premier League and mm -hmm. the FA, with this huge platform they have, can use soft power to advance the rights of a marginalized community in places yeah. across the globe when they need to. I, I, I don't see anything different from a geopolitical perspective in utilizing soft power the same way. And they might not like it in the UAE, but they bought Manchester City for the same soft power reasons. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good, compelling counter-argument. And also, what's quite interesting is actually Manchester City, in terms of being quite front foot on uh, sort of relationships with LGBT charities have been very good over the last few years. And also they put more into their women's team, um, certainly than Manchester United have over the same period. So there's, all these issues are a lot more complex than just here are these scary people from the Middle East who do really bad things. You know, it's, there's complexities um, and com different communities that and stakeholders that are involved in those discussions um, and, and those positions. It's not you know it's not black and white. Um, so yeah. It it is a complicated discussion, but that's why we have to have them, and the only way we can advance you know, not just in, in the UK, but everywhere, is by having complicated discussions and pointing it out. And some people might not like it, but 
listen, we, we, we here, we very much care about this sport. And we have every right to care about it in the same way that everyone else does. And we're, and we're not going away. You know, the younger generations are even more out, as you mentioned off the top of the show, than, than we are, you know, in our generation. And part of the question for the Premier League and all these leagues, and I mean, not to make Florentino Perez sound smart for the mm-hmm. only Super League comment we're going to make here, but how do you get younger people invested in the Premier League and in this sport? You're going to have to be different on LGBT rights and visibility for our community if they're more out than we are and they don't feel that this is a safe space, then you're going to lose customers if you do that. And if you lose customers, that means your commercial rights, your TV rights, all of that goes down. And for the Premier League and soccer across the globe, they thought this is an ever-expanding pie. It's always going to expand. There's no way we're going to lose money. Well, the pandemic proves you can lose money. And that's something that, I mean, it's definitely happening in the U.S., I'm thinking it might be also happening in the UK where the younger generation are expecting something different of companies and sports mm-hmm. teams than our generation and the generations above did. All I can, I'm just nodding in my chair. I'm nodding and agreeing with you. <laughs> well, it's fair enough. I mean, podcasting is, as says people joke yeah. visual medium. So there, there <laughs> you are. Uh, we could go on forever. And uh, you have many, many things to cover. There's a Champions League final recording this day before. Then you've got the Euros. To cover and also every big club needs a new manager apparently so you need to go cover that uh where can people find you in your work um on the athletic and my twitter handle is at adam crafton uh underscore um this has been a lot cheaper than therapy for me so um, <laughs> so thank I, you for I having me intended to be that way but again <laughs> reminder if you need therapy please go get it there's nothing weak about it i've i've had a very very rough month of of may and not all of it has been related to tottenham although some of it has been um and you know talking about these things are important and i think for us we it shouldn't be incumbent on us to necessarily have to control the discussion on all these issues but the more we talk about it the more we can put it to our friends who are not part of our community to say yeah well we need to talk about this Mm -hmm. and if we make it better for everybody then everybody's going to benefit this isn't a zero-sum game you know if if we gain other people don't lose it's make it better for everybody everybody benefits and we don't have to and if you don't like these discussions well let's make it so we don't have to have them anymore because it's just second nature you know none of us really like to talk about you know how tough it is to be a member of this community in soccer we don't want to keep talking about how fans are racist we're sick of it it's annoying we don't want to keep doing it but we have to keep doing it until it's not a problem anymore sadly that's the way the world works and I mean, if people don't like it, then fix the problem. Don't sweep the problem under the rug. I mean, that's how I've always thought about it. But anyway, Adam, again, it's been great to have you on. Appreciate your discussion, all of your insights, and we will talk to you down the line. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me.